Let's pray, shall we? we? Lord, we've come to bless your name because you are the giver of all good things. You're the giver of life. You're the giver of eternal life, Lord Jesus. We thank you for coming, for dying for us. All of our sins were placed upon you, and you said it's finished, paid in full. And now we have the freedom to bless you, and you've given us the ability to bless others. And so we pray that you help us today, that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand, and you would help us to accept what is happening in this passage today, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a subject that's near and dear to all of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to look to you as to how you want us to um, involve ourselves with your blessings to us. We thank you, Lord, for these things. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. We're getting ready to deal with the M word. But most people translate it in their brains as the T word. From God's point of view, it is the G word, which leads many people to speak a heartfelt T word. What in the world is he talking about? (laughs) Well, if you have the manuscript, you know that we're going to be cracking some code here. And uh, the the letter M is money, T. The first letter T is tithe. G is giving. And the second T is thanks. Now, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're going to talk today about giving, about money, about financial issues. But it's not as though I'm riding a hobby horse, you know, far from it. Um, As a pastor, I've never enjoyed preaching about giving. And later on in this message today, I'm going to tell you a story about how my lack of preaching about giving came with a price, the dissolving of a church. But today we're going to talk about God's principles for giving because in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 1-15, which is our passage for today, it addresses finances and just happens to be the passage that comes next, so we need to talk about financial issues. Now, you know, going through the Scripture book by book that we have done practically since we've been here as Grace United, with rare exceptions, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Well, it's a good thing at least for me anyway, because I don't have to wrestle with what to preach next because it's right in front of me. And whether I like what's coming or not, I have to preach this. And whether you like what's coming or not, you've got to listen. <laughs> and we've got to apply because this is God's Word. But the bad thing about going book by book is illustrated this way. Mike and his family were church shopping in a town in Wisconsin a number of years back. They moved there because Mike was enrolled in a Ph.D. program in one of the graduate schools in town. They heard that the church was solid. The pastor preaches the Word, as in the Word of God, and the church sought to love the and one another. Now, Mike especially was anticipating hearing a great message the second week they were there because he got word that the pastor was going to preach on his favorite passage of Scripture. So he was ready. He was waiting to hear what the pastor had to say. Well, the pastor opened his Bible and began his sermon this way. You know, I know we're supposed to cover these verses, but they're just too weird. So, and I don't know what they mean anyway, so we're just going to skip this passage. And with that, the pastor went to the next chapter 
and began to preach that message. Well, needless to say, Mike and his family never went back to that church. But the bad thing about preaching book by book through the Scripture should be obvious. There's no getting around the next passage. But no preacher worth his salt can do what this preacher did and expect the Lord to bless his ministry. And by God's grace and help, I don't want to be guilty of doing that. I don't want to be guilty of, you know, of, of skipping over passages that I don't like or that you don't want to hear or whatever the case may be. See, I have a responsibility to take us through the whole counsel of God, regardless of the comfort level of the subject matter. And so today, we're going to get into some things that might be a little uncomfortable for many. As I mentioned, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 to 15 is about God's principles of giving. I want to explain this text this morning by going through it fairly quickly. You know, in this chapter, it's pretty straightforward, and there's not a whole lot of explanation to be done with it. And after I explain the passage, I want to illustrate and apply the financial principles found here by going through God's Word and what He has to say about giving in the Scripture and other places. That's a pretty tall order because there's a lot that God says about money in Scripture. Again, as it so often happens, when God and money are mentioned in the same breath, what's the word that usually comes to mind? (laughs) Tithing. And so I want to set the record straight about tithing. As best as I can do, I want to deal with this from a biblical and historical and a personal perspective about how we as God's people are to handle the finances that He has entrusted us with. And finally, I want to drive home this point with a few points to ponder, and I've given you an actual uh, insert in your bulletin, you know, to kind of address some of these issues. So, you know, we won't have, really, we won't have time to talk about it today, but I want you to take it home and just ponder over it, look at it, pray about it, and just to see maybe, uh, you know, the Lord may be using that to maybe answer some questions that you might have, and so that uh, we can all be better stewards of what God has given us. And then, I don't think we'll have time, but we might, maybe some live Q&A, so, uh, <laughs> you know how I work, right? So maybe we will have time, maybe we want out and know. But uh, if we do, then we'll be able to do that. But again, it's a lot of stuff we want to cover, and so let's get going. Let me remind us, though, of why Paul is teaching and dealing with finances in this passage, 2 Corinthians 9. As we remember, Christians in Judea were in the middle of a terrible famine. And Paul took this opportunity to solicit funds from churches all over the empire for two reasons. First, he wanted to alleviate some of the suffering of those in the family of God. He wanted to get some tangible help from them to give to brothers and sisters in need. And second, Paul wanted to make a powerful point before the watching pagan world of displaying of love and unity by amassing these funds to give to these brothers and sisters in need. And so, chapter, chapter 9, verses 1 to 5 is, is our passage that we're going to be uh, here addressing this just temporarily. But uh, as you're turning there, I want to say this. In these verses, we have what I call sanctified peer pressure. And the main point of these verses is this. Corinthians, follow through on your promise to contribute to the Judean Famine Relief Project. And so, with that in mind, let's read these verses together. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, 
for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, as in you Corinthians, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers to you so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, it came a long way if you've been following throughout what Paul was doing here in 2 Corinthians. Remember how he has spilled a whole lot of ink trying to win back the affections of the Corinthians because false teachers sought to lead them away, lead them astray from the truth of the gospel. And now with the air cleared, Paul presses home now the need for them to continue to amass the collection for their brothers and sisters who are in dire need of food on another continent. But notice how he does this. I can imagine Paul saying something like this. I've really talked you guys up to your northern brethren, your friends in in Philippi, in Berea, in Thessalonica. They know your eagerness to give really big in this project, and your zeal has them excited as well. So Corinthians, don't let me down. Now, it's great to encourage others to complete a task that they promised to do. But as we all know, good leadership is not so much what one expects, it's what one inspects. And so Paul is sending on ahead of him some brothers in Christ, tried and true, men of integrity, to tie up some loose ends so that the Corinthians will be ready when Paul arrives to collect the offering. Notice Paul's concern. Would the Corinthians prove to be a source of humiliation to him in front of the Macedonian Christians? Or would they pass the test, resulting in thanksgiving to the Lord? Now, Paul threw down the gauntlet. He threw it down lovingly. He threw it down gently, but he threw it down nonetheless. Did the Corinthians come through with their massive donation? The text doesn't say, but here's a very good point of application for all of us. As followers of Christ, we need to be faithful to fulfill the promises that we make. We need our spiritual siblings to help us follow through with what we agreed to do. For faithfulness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. We've heard the fruit of the Spirit, right? We know what this is all about. Faithfulness is part of that. Now, Spirit-controlled people are faithful people, but we're faithful in increasing measure. We're not perfect, but we're maturing in our faithfulness. And this is what Paul was driving at in his encouragement to the Corinthians to complete the task they started for the good of others to the glory of God. But accountability in this case was a delicate thing. It couldn't be a coerced thing. Why? Because the issue was money. Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthians knew that he was not forcing them to give to the famine relief against their will. By sending brothers on ahead 
Titus and two unnamed godly Christ followers. Paul wanted to ensure that their collection would not be an awkward thing, but it would be fully ready to go when he got there. And you know, I see Paul's concern over this whole thing to be very refreshing, don't you? See, it was not lost on him how delicate this issue of finances are. Perhaps we've all heard of horror stories where the offering baskets passed around once, twice, three times or more because not enough money's been given in there. And that's why a whole lot of folks, they say, the only thing you want from me is my money. Hmm. Paul did not want any awkward moments regarding this collection. He put his concern out there for all the Corinthians to see at the end of verse 5. He wanted to be sure that their gift was willingly given and not to be done, as he said, as an exaction. The idea here is that Paul did not want them to feel as though he was simply getting some money from them to take it from them, even though the money was to be given for a very, very good cause. But how often do leaders, whether in the church, in business, other places, manipulate the listener? Marketers know exactly how to pull strings in our hearts so that we'll open up our wallets and take out our credit cards. How many innocent, unsuspecting people have been used to line the pockets of greedy people in the church and outside the church? It's appalling, isn't it? So here again is the bottom line of all of this. Corinthians, finish what you start, what you promise to do. Have everything together so it won't be awkward when I get there to pick up this offering from you. And as we saw in verses 1 to 5, Paul encouraged them to complete their task with sanctified peer pressure. And other churches were watching and perhaps even following the Corinthians' lead and their zeal. And so now again, let's return here and let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, as we look at the Corinthians' true kingdom investment. I say true because the issue is not the money per se, but it's the attitude and the motivation that comes with it. See, if a right heart does not accompany a donation given, it is not a true kingdom investment, regardless of how much is given. Let's read these verses together. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And in the most concise, tactful way anybody could put it, we find Paul revealing the very heart of what it means in giving, the very heart of, of what we ought to be doing, our attitude anytime we give a gift to the Lord. First notice, God's investment strategy. It is the old adage, you will reap what you sow. Now, this is truth. This is wisdom. Because regardless of the issue at hand, 
we will reap what we sow. The more time and energy and resources that we invest in something or someone, the more skilled we get at that activity or the more we know the other person. This is obvious. It's obvious, but it's profound. And the reality is that it takes away our excuses, doesn't it? Excuses for avoiding that which is most important. Now, the truth is, at every turn, we have choices to make. Into what or into whom will we invest our resources, our lives? Oh, and by the way, the stark reality is simply this. Our intentions, regardless of how noble and regardless of how sincere, don't count. What counts is what we actually do to invest. And when it comes to the things of the Lord, what we actually do with them determines the amount of spiritual yield. Let's say, for example, I spend 30 minutes a month outside of the corporate worship service looking at my Bible and praying. What will that yield for me? It will yield 30 minutes worth of my relationship with the Lord. Now, question, what will this 30 minutes accomplish in my life, in my battle to overcome temptation? About 30 minutes worth, right? I suppose it'd be better than five minutes. But truly, we cannot get away from God's investment strategy. We are going to reap what we sow. And when it comes to the giving of finances, Paul said this, we all have a choice. We don't have a choice of whether to give, though. It's a given. It's a command. We are to give. The issue is not if we give, but how much do we give. That lies within our purview. This is something that we get to decide. Look again at verse 7. On the positive side, each of us must give as we have what? Decided in our heart. This is what we do. Now look at the negative side. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. But look at the final result. God loves a cheerful giver. It's significant that the word cheerful here in the original language appears only one time in the entire New Testament. But it's pretty straightforward, though. And one author describes this word this way. As one's heart is laughing, like that, that's cool. Or one's eyes are dancing. What a great description of being cheerful. I like that. But that's a challenge, though, isn't it, when it comes to finances? To part with one's financial resources with a great big smile is a great big thing in our culture because we put so much stock in our money. But the Corinthians, though, you know they have the same issue regarding riches. Remember their culture. The Corinthians had the best and the worst of everything, if you know what I mean. Mammon was just as formidable of an obstacle to living for Jesus in Paul's day as it is in our day. But it's not as though the Lord tells us sternly and harshly to just tough it out. What the Lord does is to enable His people then and now to have big smiles on our faces as we part with the presidential flashcards in our wallets. In verses 8 and 9, we see that the Lord overabundantly supplies everything that we need. And why does He do that? So that we can abound in every good work. Open-handed generosity results in God filling our hands with what we need 
as we pass on His blessings to others. But it's our choice as to how involved we can be and how involved we are as to passing on these blessings to others. It's our choice. We can pass on as much or as little as we desire. And He has given us so much though, hadn't He? He's abundantly supplied. And what tremendous freedom has the Lord given us? We can choose to be involved in as little or as much as we want. And this is the essence, though, of what Paul is telling the Corinthians. If he has blessed you so abundantly, can't you bless others with a portion of those blessings? And their answer and our answer can only be this, indeed, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Such is the true kingdom investment as found in verses 6 to 9. Now, in verses uh, 10 to 15, we're going to see the results of true kingdom investment, which is really God's glorious goal for all of us. God's people giving immense thanksgiving to Him for two reasons. First, thanksgiving happens because of what He has done to bless His people and we to give Him thanks. And second, we give thanks to the Lord for the greatest gift He could ever give anyone. And what gift is that? His Son. Gift of His Son. So let's read these verses together. Paul writes, He who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way to which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It doesn't stop with us. It stops when them and they give thanksgiving to the Lord. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs for the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Not just physical needs met, but giving God thanks. By their approval of this service, the Judean Christians, they will glorify God. Why? Because of your submission, Corinthians, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them. And for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God among you and upon you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable, inexpressible gift. What an amazing flow of blessings this is. It begins with the Lord Himself, the source of all blessings. God supplies physical needs to everybody, seed for the sower and bread for food. And as a result, God's people pass on His provision to give to people in need, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. As physical needs are met of our spiritual siblings, the harvest of righteousness then increases. How does it work that way? Christians then see righteousness of Christ in fellow Christians. As Christians give to others, we see the righteousness of Christ. Because that's not natural, is it? It's natural for us to hoard things, not to give them. And so God changes us that we might be able to do that. And what will the increase of righteousness do in the lives of those who give to meet the needs of others? Our generosity increases. It's like we get a taste of it and we want to do more. We continue in this generosity. They meet the needs of even more people who will then give thanks to those that receive it. And they, and they give thanks to whom? They give thanks to us, yes, if we do this. 
But more importantly, and vastly more importantly, to give thanks to God, the giver of all things. He is the giver of all blessings. To God be the glory. But there's more. In verses 13 and 14, on a practical side, the Corinthians contribute to the famine relief. What will the Jewish Christians in Judea see in the lives of Gentile Christians in Corinth? That wicked city that God planted a church in. Jewish Christians will then glorify God. Why? Because they will know He has done such a marvelous work in the lives of former pagans in such a wicked town called Corinth. And what will all this produce? The Jewish saints in Judea will then pray for and desire to have fellowship with the Gentile saints in Corinth. In other words, love and unity will abound. It's amazing stuff how this works. And for us, especially those who know David in Bangladesh, we've got to know that he prays for us. Those who know sends pictures to us of his daughter's progress in the school. He shares his life with us. And why does he do this? All because the Lord has laid upon our hearts to provide for some of his needs for his famine relief in Bangladesh. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, David and his wife now need to provide not just for their immediate family, but also for another family in their extended family because the breadwinner died recently. And as we might imagine, jobs there are scarce and food is even more so in Bangladesh. There are Christian churches, though, where David lives, and I praise God for that. And we need to continue to pray for him and his family and the extended family. And again, let's continue to give to our brother cheerfully with our eyes dancing, right? With our hearts singing as we have decided in our hearts to give for his and their sustenance. And the absolute, glorious, inexpressible bottom line is this. God gave the Corinthians and us the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Him, there would be no life transformation. Where would you be if Jesus wasn't in your life? What would your life be like? Without Him, no life transformation. There would be very limited generosity in this world. We would continue to rack and stack all kinds of people with ourselves at the top. Would you agree with that? We would tell the world with all their needs who I am and what I do is far more important than who you are and what you do. But the Lord Jesus changes all of that. Salvation comes to a sinner, and the Lord Jesus turns them into His servants and servants of others for His sake. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. And I think it would be very fitting at this point for us to end the first part of this message by giving the Lord thanks by reciting verse 15 together. It is on the screen. And so say it with me and say it like we mean it. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Amen. Now, having gone through the text, kind of flying a little bit there, we need to turn the corner now. And I want this to go on a whirlwind tour through Scripture and history and even parts of my life regarding the issue of tithing. And let me tell you up front that by conviction, I do not believe that tithing is something that the Lord requires of His people in the church. 
There are many reasons for this. And obviously, this is not an issue that we to break fellowship over. So if you are convinced that tithing is a thing for you, go for it. That's no problem. But for me, by conviction, I will never preach tithing, ever. See, there are many godly people on all three sides of the fence of this. And I've told you where I stand. But you need to do your homework and live your life in this regard concerning a conviction about whether tithing or not is something for you. Because as Christians, we're all going to give an account one day before the Lord. So let's begin with Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Now, of course, the tithe means what? Tenth. Ten percent. It has come to mean for us, though, in the church, 21st century Christianity in America, 10% of our income. But the tithe, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, is far different in usage and purpose so that what many people see as giving 10% in our offering baskets today is far different than what it was in the Old Testament a long time ago. The word tithe is mentioned as far as, you know, tenth and giving of, of, of your resources here. It's mentioned about 40 times in 40 different places. Now, there were typically two uses for the tithe, all right? First, every three years, people were to take the tithe and feed the poor in their local area. The second use for the tithe is for God's people, on one hand, to provide for the priests in the temple, and those kinds of things, too, for the sacrifices on one hand, and then to come together and consume and feed together, have a party together. Massive dinner on the grounds comes to mind here. We're talking tithing. Isn't that cool? It seems that God loves to have His people come together to celebrate the fact that we are family, to celebrate the fact that He's our, our Heavenly Father. That's what they saw then. Also, something you might find interesting, that the full tithe, we're not talking 10%. We're talking over 20%. That wouldn't sell very well in the modern church, would it? Or maybe it would, I don't know. See, when these numbers geeks, these, these, these Bible scholars, they would kind of add all these numbers together, and they have discovered that it's about 22% when all the requirements for all the tithe is put together. That's how much God requires of his people back in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there is no standard, no standard at all of the tithe being for anybody. Now, it's true that the tithe was mentioned, but it was mentioned in the context when Jesus used it as a rebuke, a rebuke to the Pharisees. He basically said to them, you are so good at setting aside one sprig of ten and one seed of ten of all your herbs, but you have missed what really matters, justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, you've kind of missed the forest for the trees, guys. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel. Fast forward here. In church history, we have a consistent view of many of the, of the leaders. One of those leaders was a guy named Justin Martyr. And he was aptly named because he did have, he was martyred for his faith. And in around 155, he wrote this in regard to the giving of people, of Christians in the early church. How did they give? Why did they give? He said this. And the Christians who are well to do, what does that mean? Rich, right? And willing, 
Give what each thinks fits, and what is collected is deposited with the president, or we would call a pastor, who supports the orphans, the widows, the sick, those in prison, and the homeless, those who are just passing through. That's what they did with the giving in the church. Another leader, his name was Tertullian. He wrote these words about the same time as Justin Martyr did, around 150. He says this, on, on the monthly day, as in one day a month, if he likes, if he likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure. What does that mean? If he wants to. And only if he is able to. There is no compulsion. All is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund. They were not taken from there and spent on personal pleasure, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the needs for orphans and the elderly homebound and those out of work and those in prison. This was the attitude. This was why they give, gave in the early church. And so before tithing became kind of mandatory for so many, it was completely, absolutely voluntary. It was also like a clearinghouse of sorts because when people gave their offering to the church, what, are the, what was the expectation? All that money was to be given away. But time marched on and the church became more established and the hierarchy became more ensconced. The first organized attempt to make the tithe mandatory in the church worldwide was in a church council about 567. These church councils, they're real pieces of work, aren't they? For some. Now, there's a lot of church councils that hammered out some, some doctrines that we take for granted, like the Trinity and who Jesus is and those things. So it's important. But in this particular church council, they tried to make tithing a worldwide mandate. And about 200 years later, the Catholic church joined hands with Charlemagne, king of the Franks. And this made tithing official with the legal backing of the state. In the years that followed, tithing was more or less emphasized in some places and less in others. But the point is, tithing became mandatory among many because of the wedding of church and state. In Europe today, other places, Germany especially, you have an actual tax that you give, and that's given to the church. So it seems, though, that Protestant pastors, especially Baptist preachers who emphasize the tithe, are more Catholic than Protestant <laughs> and more Catholic than Baptist. Now, the Scripture does not support the idea of a tithe for the Christian, as I've seen. And, and, and again, my conviction is this. And church history does not lend itself to the tithe either. As I said before, I'm a non-tithe guy by conviction. And it's also somewhat personal for me as well. And the story I'm about to tell you, to be frank, was a very, very difficult circumstance when I went through it. And I'm no longer angry at the personalities in the story. But I have to tell you this to let you know that I have felt the sting of this issue of tithe. For the leader that I dealt with was absolutely convinced that the tithe was mandatory for the church. And the story has to do with how Grace United Family Church came to be. In large measure, we exist today because of the issue of the tithe or lack thereof. 
Before we became Grace United, we were part of another church network. And because I did not push tithing, we ran well behind in meeting our budgetary needs that the leader of the network set for us. One day he sat me down and he said something to the effect that because I was not bringing in enough tithe money, as of right now, the church is dissolved. Now, that was a gut punch. It really was a gut punch. And for those of us who remember who've been with us since the early days, we had a meeting a couple of days later. And at that meeting, all 50 of us decided that we would continue. And you guys accepted me as your pastor. And I'm so grateful to the Lord for him turning something that was really, really bad into something that was, I think, pretty good. What do you think? Now, praise the Lord for what he has been doing since we became Grace United in June of 2012. The Lord has continued to bless us. He's prompted his people to give, and we've been faithful to obey the promptings. There have been times, though, when things weren't as clear, things weren't as sure of our future concerning Grace United. Remember a couple of years ago, we didn't know if our doors were going to remain. And so you remember the letter that I sent out for some of you. And we prayed, and God prompted, and we were obedient to the promptings. And so now I'm happy to report that God has abundantly blessed us, and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm glad about that. As I mentioned a little earlier, because we have been faithful to God's promptings to give, we continue to provide the means for famine relief to two families in Bangladesh. And remember what happened in our past, our recent past. Because we gave even over, above, over and above what we normally do, we were able to send two of our young men to Kenya who had a, a life-changing experience and their eyes were open to what the Lord is doing in the world. And every missionary that we pray for, that John had prayed for today, we have given financially because of our generosity of giving to the Lord in this place. Now, of course, uh, most, uh, all of us understand that, you know, the money that we give goes to pay the rent, goes to keep the lights on, and to supply the stipend for two of your servants here at Grace United. And I want to say, you know, speaking for Kitty and me alone, is that I'm in a unique circumstance when it comes to pastors, especially in this country. The vast majority of pastors are fully supported by the offerings of the people in their congregations. And that is perfectly fine. That is right. That's biblical. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, he said, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. For my family, such is not the case. See, I don't get my living by being your pastor. As a family, we cannot survive in what Grace United gives us on what's called a bivocational pastor. Simply put, I have more sources of income than what Grace United offers, and I would not have it any other way. What Grace United offers merely closes the gaps in the finances and the needs that we have for our family. And I'm most grateful for the amount of the stipend that you do give because it allows me to be available to you, to study as well, to pray mostly. For Grace United. But more ministry can be done if we have more resources. Now, it's true that much ministry can be accomplished by using resources other than money. 
Take time, for example. How valuable is our time? Now, God has entrusted every one of us with how many hours a week? 168. 168 hours. We all have the same amount of time, but it is valuable, isn't it? God's entrusted us with it. Every day we wake up, okay, I've got 24 hours. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to invest it? How many people are profoundly changed by the gospel if we take the time to give them the gospel and to live the gospel before them? But it takes time, valuable time. Things that we possess can often be and often are used to further the ministry as well. Things like our tools or vehicles or whatever it is can be used to further the ministry. But money is a major pool of resources that can be used to further the ministry at Grace United. The more we give over and above the bare bones expenses of what it costs to keep Grace United going means that we can give more to others. I mentioned a bit ago about the numbers geeks, you know, the Bible scholars who find into, dive into the fine details and get all these numbers amassed in here. There are also church financial numbers geeks as well. Now, I was given a statistic a while back by somebody that I trust. And uh, again, it's a while back, so I'm not sure how up-to-date it is or whatever. But he told me this. He says, if every family unit would give 10% of their income to their local church, the local church would never have a financial need. Of course, what that means by these geeks, <laughs> when you think about a, a family unit, we're thinking about a person living by themselves, or we're thinking about a person with even 10 or 15 people under the roof. 10% given to the local church, local church will never have a need. And so with all these facts and figures rolling around in our heads, my prayer is that some of this would find lodging in our hearts. First, we can rejoice as to how the Lord so abundantly blessed us over the years. He's tested us many times, and now we are in a season of abundant blessing. Our, our latest financial report is amazing. It really is. Second, we can be challenged. I've mentioned several times that our tongues are tied to our hearts, right? Jesus says, out of the overflow of our mouth, or of our heart, our mouth speaks. But there's something else that's tied to our hearts as well. It's our wallet. Jesus told us in the context of personal wealth that we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A sure sign that the Lord has got our heart is how generous we are with the money that he's entrusted us with. If we are comfortable parting with the presidential flashcards in our wallets to meet the needs of our church or blood family, then we know that it is the Lord, not mammon, that we serve. Finally, let's consider the key issue of our giving. Paul encouraged the Corinthians to follow the amazing example of the Macedonian Christians as they went all in regarding Paul's famine relief project. And he outlined it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and even beyond their means, of their own accord, 
begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. And not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So what was the key? Before they gave their money, they gave themselves to the Lord and they recommitted themselves to God's people. And may we in the 21st century follow the trail that our brothers and sisters blazed as to how giving is done. The Lord who gave us his all to give us salvation, the one that we follow had to borrow a coin to illustrate a sermon. Did you know that? Money was not his master. His father was. And what can we say to all of this? Again, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, the gift of his son. Let's represent him well regarding the riches he's entrusted us with, located in our wallets, that God may be praised and his people blessed. You own us. You own the means of production. You own the, 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 the money in our wallets. You own the, the amount in our financial uh, accounts. You own the possessions that we have. Everything, Lord, is yours. And Lord, you've allowed us to, and, and you've entrusted us with these things. And Lord, you've done that so that we can be a blessing to other people. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to live in this country at this time. Lord, the abundance that we have in comparison with the rest of the world is amazing. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us these things so that we can be a blessing to others. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to open our hearts to be more generous than what we are even right now. Lord, we thank you for the gift that you have given us, the gift of salvation. Lord, we know that we can never outgive you. Lord, salvation is, is so precious to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we continue to look around, that we might be able to meet the physical needs and emotional needs of other people, and especially the spiritual needs by giving people the gospel. Lord, we know that it takes time to do that. And so, Lord, we're, we want to lay ourselves on the altar for you that you might use us, uh, that we, we might be available to other people to give the gospel. Lord, we want to lay on, our, on the altar all of our possessions, because in using those possessions, we can maybe bring someone closer to you. And Lord, we lay our money on the altar as well. Lord, that you might use it to, to honor and glorify yourself, that the gospel may go forth around the world and that your people might be blessed. And speaking of which, Lord, I thank you for our time of giving now. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give as an act of worship to you. Thank you also, Lord, for our ability to sing. And I pray that we will do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to thank you again and praise you for who you are and what you've done Lord, help us to love you and help us to love you more and serve you better because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.